Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As regular listeners of the show know, we have been delving into the cycle of Torah readings, the weekly portion known as the Parashah, that is explored in synagogue each and every week. This week, our Parashah is entitled Vayishlach, and he went on his way. Some would translate it, and he was sent. It begins in Genesis 32, verse 4, and ends in Genesis 36, verse 43. The parasha is uh, replete with many well-known stories, some of which raise uh, extreme questions uh, for uh, spiritually-minded people of our generation. So let me give you a brief synopsis of the parasha before we delve into greater depth in certain areas with our guests this morning. Many years after his marriages to Rachel and Leah, which were described last week's portion, Jacob received word from God that it was time to return home. Jacob sent messengers ahead to meet his brother Esau. Tell him, the text says, that his servant Jacob has been with Laban until now. Tell him that I have acquired herds, flocks, and servants. Tell him I seek favor in his eyes. The messengers that Jacob sent soon returned and said, Your brother is coming to meet you, but there are 400 men with him. Jacob was very much afraid of his brother because of the deception that had led to him being given the special firstborn blessing. So Jacob divided his camp, saying, If Esau strikes down one camp, the other will escape. Thereupon Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, God who says to me to return to my country and that the Almighty will do good to me. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, for I fear that he shall kill me and my family, even though you promise to make my descendants like sand in the sea. Having offered that prayer, Jacob then sets aside gifts for Esau from his herds and property. He instructed his servants to go one by one with space in between to present Esau with these gifts. While the servants were bringing gifts to Esau, Jacob moved his wife and children to yet another camp. Jacob was left alone in his camp, and someone wrestled with him until the daybreak. When the one that wrestled with Jacob saw that it was impossible to win, that one, known in the text as Ish, touched the upper joint of Jacob's thigh, and it was dislocated. Then the one that was fighting against Jacob say, let me go for day is breaking. And Jacob respond, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? Asked the wrestler, Jacob. Then your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For prevailing in this fight, you have become the commanding power before God and men. Yisrael is the translation, which means one who has wrestled with Al, God. The one that wrestled Jacob would not give a name, but did bless Jacob. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen the divine face to face, and my character has remained intact. 
that story ends by suggesting that Jacob limped away for his encounter with Esau. After the rapprochement with Esau, we have the story which is known in English as the Rape of Dina. The brief synopsis of that story is Dina, the only daughter of Leah and Jacob, went to explore the area where they were camped. Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, the prince of the land, saw Dina and took her. But his soul cling, clung to Dina, the text says, and he loved the girl, and he asked his father to get him for, as a wife. Jacob and all the men of the camp heard that Dina had been defiled and their hearts were filled with sorrow and anger. Soon the father, Shrem, approached Jacob and asked for permission for Dina to marry his son. He offered a large dowry. The sons of Jacob spoke to him, saying, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to a man who has foreskin, for that is a disgrace to us. However, if you want to circumcise your men, they will become one people. But if you choose not to circumcise, we will take Dina and leave your land. The son and the rest of the men of uh, Hamor, the Hevite, uh, became circumcised. And on the third day, when the males were in pain, the two brothers of Dina, Shimon and Levi, came and killed all the males of that city, including the men who had raped their city. They took the property of the people and took all the women and children captive. Jacob, who has been silent up until this point, says to his sons, you have brought me trouble. You discredit me among the people who live in Canaan. They will gather together and strike us. Later, God speaks to Jacob and says, go to Bethel, the house of God, live there and make an altar to God. Therein, Jacob and all the captives purify themselves, change their clothes, and bring him their foreign gods. Jacob buried these gods under the oak tree in the city of the rape. The parasha ends with Jacob's favorite wife dying in childbirth. She named the child of that um, child... Um, that birth Ben-Oni, but Jacob changed it to Benjamin, who will reappear in the episodes regarding Joseph, his brother. And so the parasha ends with the birth of Benjamin and the death of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. This morning, my guest is Rabbi Stephen Bob, who will discuss with me the parasha Vayishlach, Rabbi Bob served as the senior rabbi of Congregation Eitz Chaim in Lombard for 35 years. Today, he serves as an adjunct faculty member at Wheaton College and Elmhurst College, both of which are in Illinois. He is the author of two books, The First, Jonah and the Meaning of Our Lives, published by Jewish Publication Society in 2016, and the second book entitled Go to Nineveh by Wimpf and Stock in 2013. He is currently writing a new book on Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's a pleasure to welcome Rabbi Stephen Bob to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Now, this morning, as the listeners know, we're going to be talking about Parashava Yishlach, 
And we're going to focus on the introductory chapter, chapter 32, in which we uh, confront Jacob wanting to meet his brother Esau. Um, and we have a very uh, unusual set of verses from verse 9 through 13, which introduce us to uh, a prayer that uh, Jacob offers. It's really um, an interesting prayer in which it sounds more like a request um, and a negotiation. So, Rabbi, why don't you begin by helping us understand who Jacob is at this point in the story? I love reading about Jacob, and I love teaching about Jacob because he's so dynamic. He grows. His growth can always remind us that we, too, can grow. So Jacob, when we first met him, he, at the, the very beginning of his life, he was born holding on to his brother's heel. And he's named Yaakov in Hebrew, coming from the Hebrew word Akeb to mean heel. Now, I think that when we call him Jacob, we might miss the Hebrew wordplay. So I like to think of him as heel. And he proves it's an appropriate name for him. He's the heel. Um, so it's a play on words from the Hebrew, right? Heel, meaning the heel that um, he was holding onto as he uh, entered the world, but also his behavior is uh, behavior. <laughs> he is not a heroic figure at the, in the first years of his life. He is not someone we would admire. Um, he takes advantage of his brother and uh, trades him a, a bowl of uh, red stew for the birthright. He takes advantage of his father's blindness in old age. <clears throat> he is not loving and caring and doing for others. He is centered on only himself. A narcissist of the highest order, and one wonders what will be the transition that makes this heel uh, worthy of being called a patriarch of the people of Israel. Right. You know, so our names tell us something about ourselves. So you and I share the same first name in English, Steve. But I have the Hebrew name of Simcha. So Simcha means joy. Uh, my parents named me Simcha on the eighth day of my life, and I'm a joyous person. I'm as happy as anybody anybody I ever meet. So Simcha is my Hebrew name, and it's also descriptive of who I am, and it's a name I think that I continue to earn each day. Yaakov, or Jacob, is a heel, and during the first part of his life, it's a name he earns every day, even when he has the dream of the angels going up and down the ladder as he's leaving the land of Canaan, and he sees God speaking to him from the top of this ladder, he, the prayer that he offers is a self-centered prayer. It's the prayer, I think, it's, as you said, the prayer of narcissism. He says to God, if you take care of me, and if you protect me, and if you bring me back to this land, then I will serve you. In Judaism and in Christianity, we don't usually start prayers with the condition. <laughs> we don't say to God, if you do X, Y, and Z for me, then I will serve you. We usually start prayers with a much more humble stance on our part. But the young Jacob, he thinks the world centers on him. Here in this week's portion, 
we see a shift, a shift in his sense of self and a shift in his relationship with God. Here, and what is that shift? It's a shift to humility. Um, so if we, look, if we look at the beginning uh, of his prayer, if we look at um, verse 11. So let me read it for our listeners who may well, not... everybody know it by heart? <laughs> well, many of the listeners will, but there will be a few who don't. Uh, yes, maybe so um, it begins, I have become small from all the kindnesses and uh, from all the truth that you have rendered your servant. For with my staff, I crossed the Jordan. Now I have become two camps. Now deliver me, and you'll change the translation if you so wash. Now deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him, lest he come and strike me, a mother with children." And you said, I will surely do good with you, and I will make your seed as numerous as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of multitude. Yes? Yes, great. Now, because of who I am, I read the prayer in the original Hebrew. Good. So if you want, share it with our listeners in the Hebrew. Yeah, I'll look at a couple of words in a moment. I, I think it's important to read the text in the original. The Hebrew Bible has lots of Hebrew wordplay, and also I think that some of the words are chosen for how they sound, not necessarily for simply their manifest meaning. In recent years, I've been studying Biblical Greek, and I'm now reading the Gospel according to John in Greek, we're at the end of chapter 4, and I understand reading that text in Greek, I get more from it than I do in reading English translation. Here, if we look at the beginning of the verse, when it says, I am made small, I love the sound of the word katonti. It's, it's a, the, the root of the word is a common Hebrew word, katan, but katonti is a very unusual form. Um, I think it's stronger than I have been made small. I have been smallified. I mean, it's all, it's all in, in English, it takes several words to express it, but in Hebrew, it's all done within one word. Katonti. Katonti. Now, it, it sounds like an interesting word. Katonti. Um, and it's not that other people have made Jacob small. I think that he has smallified himself. That he has he's diminished his own sense of self. Um, young children aren't aware of the world around them. And as we grow into maturity, we become more and more aware of the world. I can kid around about being from Minnesota, but as a small child, I imagine that Minnesota was the center of the world. Um, and that I didn't know the world beyond, beyond our home and our neighborhood. And as I've grown, I've become um, more, much more aware of other, other parts of the world, the more people around me, the welfare of more people around me. And I no longer see myself as a being at the center of the world. So this katonti is, I think, an expression of humility. Next. So it's kind of uh, in a more reflexive uh, translation of the word than I have become small. But rather you're suggesting for the listeners that this is I have made myself small 
in order yeah, yeah. to achieve what's next. Right. Yes, yes, yes. So, when we help other people, we're making ourselves small. Yesterday, I was driving on the expressways of Chicago, which are always crowded. <laughs> during rush hour, they're really, really crowded. And during not rush hour, they're only sort of crowded. And I know that when I let a person who wants to change lanes, when I let that person move in in front of me, I am making myself small in a certain way to give the other person the opportunity to go where they want to go. In um, the Kabbalistic tradition, this might be known as Tzimtzum, to withdraw into yourself in order to make room for others. And in the mystical tradition of Judaism, Tzimtzum is how we make room for God, which somewhat fits with the paradigm you're offering in that Jacob is withdrawing, making himself small so that he can end up with a different kind of interaction with God than the one in the previous parasha. Right. Before he's offering a prayer to God, which is basically saying, God, you owe me. Right. <laughs> which is, a, to use the philosophical term, a chutzpah kind of prayer. It's a very nervy prayer to offer, you owe me. Here, he's saying, you have blessed me. He is expressing his appreciation for what God has done for him, and he understands that he is not at the center of this conversation, that when he speaks to God, God is at the center of the conversation. That as human beings, we, we arrive and we go, to use the words from my favorite biblical book, Jonah, we, we appear in a night and we disappear in a night. We come and go in one day. But here, he's beginning to get that sense of himself and that he's here on earth for a larger purpose. I think that that's so important for our own sense of self. I think our sense of self is strengthened when we diminish ourselves rather than when we promote ourselves. So... In the context of the parasha and in the context of the epic of Jacob, we see someone who um, has been a heel for and a narcissist for most of the text is presentation for him. And then we come to this week's parasha and he is confronted with um, the request Um, by God to make uh, expiation with his brother Esau. And as you read it and as you teach it, do you think it's the requirement to make tshuva, to make repentance? Uh, In the Hebrew, we might translate tshuva both as repentance, but turning around, turning in a different direction that serves as the uh, transitional moment, this rub. Requirement to speak to Esau not as um, as an equal, as a loving brother, and he has God is calling him to account. Aha! That, he, that, that Jacob has to. It's been twenty years since he's been gone, but he has to account for how poorly he treated his brother all those years ago, and simply because time has passed, the sin don't disappear. 
I imagine you've had the similar experiences I have when dealing with families over a life cycle event, and people have come to town carrying suitcases, and they're carrying suitcases that contain clothes, and they're also carrying suitcases that contain um, memories. And sometimes the memories are good, and sometimes the memories are not so good. And people are recalling the wrongs that have been done to them by other members of the families over the years. Sometimes I've met with families to talk about, to prepare for a funeral for a parent, and we talk about the parent who has died, but also all sorts of other things explode, all sorts of other conflicts and resentments explode, and people are called to account for what they did many years before. So I want to, I, I mean, I, I think that it's a wonderful insight, but I want to um, expand the insight to just beyond this uh, prayer um, and to the meeting with Esau and take your hypothesis that this is about a transformative mo- moment, a returning, a turning away from the old uh, Jacob into a new Jacob. And as you well know, that shortly after verse 13, we enter into the conversation um, or the story about Jacob wrestling with the unnamed entity. Um, and some people have suggested, of course, that this is uh Jacob wrestling with an angel of God, but your uh, analysis of the first part of the parasha would lead one to believe that this episode of wrestling is a reflection of Jacob wrestling with his conscience and with what he had been and what he will now be. Um, And in effect, the change of name um, as it's said in Genesis thirty-two twenty-nine, your name shall no longer be Jacob is very much in fitting with your paradigm as you're no longer the heel. Well, oh, I believe I agree with you completely. He earns a new name. He earns a he new name grow- rather than the name up. he was given and the name he grew into of being the heel he now takes upon himself a new name. Right, and the people, the, the angel, the man himself, gives them this new name of Yisrael. And it's a name that he's going to be understood and remembered as Yisrael, and this is a name of honor, not the name of, uh, of insult. So and I think that go ahead. When, we, when we grow... We could earn a new name. Let me give you an example. So just to remind our listeners, there is a, a, a pitgam, a little saying in Pirkei Avot, uh, a section of the second century document known as Mishnah that says, each of us has three names, the name that we are given at birth, the name that we call ourselves, and the name that others call us. And they're not necessarily the same, although I would suggest that in the episode of Jacob, we're seeing the transition from uh, the reality of that little uh, aphorism that he's given a name at birth, but then he uh, 
earns that name, but then moves on to another name that he will now call himself and that hopefully others will call him. Oh, I, I agree completely. Even as he prepares, he divides his family into two camps. He shows a concern for his wives and his children. He's going to go, and when he eventually goes and meets Esau, he goes first. He doesn't send his children out to meet their uncle first and to see what happens to his children. No, he goes first. That he is willing to accept the responsibility for what he did, has did, did Esau years ago, and he's willing to accept what, whatever Esau's going to do to him now is on him. He doesn't try to hide behind uh, his family's uh, skirts, as one might say. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Or, oh, Esau, look at all my cute children. Aren't they right. adorable? <laughs> That's right. You know, whatever I did to you before, Esau, remember that I'm now the uh, um, patriarch of all these wives and children, and that uh, your inappropriate response to me um, will be on their heads. But as you suggest, the new Jacob, the man who wrestles with who he was and wrestles with what he will be, is now prepared to walk first and take the consequences of his actions. Uh, well, so here's the example from my own life. So the congregation had a party for me when I reached 25 years with the congregation. We had a very nice dinner. My extended family all came from out of town for this, and um, I'm sitting at a table. My wife is on one side, my brother, who's two years younger than me, is on the other side of me. And the speakers are heaping praise upon me. Some deserve, some not at all deserve. One of the speakers describes me as patient, and I thought my brother was going to fall out of his chair. (laughs) He did not remember me as patient from our childhood. (laughs) He just let his head fall on my shoulder. Uh, I turned to him and I said, Ken, I have grown. (laughs) um, I feel like I'm myself with Jacob here. Perfect. And perhaps every one of us recognizes ourselves in Jacob. Who we were as a child is not who we um, want to become later in life when we have responsibilities to family. Um, And in Jacob's case, he has responsibility for the covenant, that he is now yeah. the third in line after Abraham and his father, Isaac. And however he got this birthright, um, the Torah tells us that he uh, uh, stole it from his brother twice. But now he is the uh, protector, the guardian of this birthright. Um, and all of a sudden, he has to determine what that's going to mean. Um, these are wonderful insights, and I thank you. We just have a few minutes left, and so I want to ask you before we wrap up if you have some closing comment about this parasha for our listeners. Well, people kid around about being on a mission from God. <laughs> the Blues Brothers and other in popular culture, people kid around about being on a mission from God. But we're all really on a mission from God. Jacob gets to hear from God directly. We get to hear from God through the biblical text. And God, I think, commissions us, whether we're Jews or whether we're Christians, God commissions us to be on a mission. 
And here, we're, this text, this story, reminds us that we, throughout our lives, have the opportunity to respond to God's call to be on a mission, to do I, God's will in the world. That is the perfect summary for this week's parasha. I want to thank uh, my guest, Rabbi uh, Simcha Steve Bob, um, who has uh, eloquently uh, elucidated some of the meanings behind this week's parasha. You can hear a podcast of the program on iTunes or at the chri.ca website. If you wish to contact me, you may send an email to jff at chri.ca. And if possible, we will respond to you personally or on the air. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, let me bid you shalom and have a good day. Shalom, shalom,